Well, amen. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. As you're turning there, if you want to hold your spot at James 4, verse 1, we'll also be looking at a couple verses in James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15 there as well. Um, But we dive back into our series, our summer sermon series in the book of James. we got really only a few more weeks left, um, and then we'll start transitioning into our fall series and everything. Um, But remember, a couple weeks ago, pre-VBS and everything, um, we looked at earthly and heavenly wisdom. These two kinds of wisdoms, earthly and heavenly wisdom, and which wisdom you and I possess will be revealed in our words and in our works. In other words, what we say and what we do will reveal our wisdom. Is it heavenly or is it earthly? And with that message a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, some of us declared, I want heavenly wisdom. Or some of us declared, I possess heavenly wisdom. But since then... We've noticed ourselves maybe quarreling, or bickering, or complaining, or fighting with others, clashing with people, sometimes over little things, sometimes over major things. And perhaps we're wondering why. What's causing this? What's going on? Why is this happening? It's the same question I'm asking when one hour my kids, all three of them, are quiet and peaceful and they're getting along nicely. And then the next hour they're quarreling and fighting and complaining and bickering and clashing with each other. Sometimes over small things like a pencil from Dollar Tree, other times over major things. And all I can ask is why? What's causing this? What changed? And it's the same question that you might ask when you look at our world. The quarreling, the bickering, the fighting, the complaining, the clashing with people. Why? What's going on? What's causing this? Well, James answers the question. And as he answers the question, he also lays out some commands for us that, if obeyed, will help us to resist our evil urges that you and I have that are causing so much demise, so much destruction, so much death. But we need to start with a couple of verses in James chapter 1, because these words here in James 1, 12 through 15, are foundational to the main passage, main passage in James chapter 4. Remember, James chapter 1 functions almost like an introduction to the rest of the book, and then he expounds on it more. But these verses are crucial in understanding where James is coming from in James chapter 4. So James chapter 1, verse 12, he writes this, blessed is the one who perseveres or who endures under trial. Now what's interesting is the word that he uses there for trial is the same word that he'll later use for temptation. Who perseveres under temptation. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised 
to those who love him. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, hey, God's the one tempting me. You shouldn't say that because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, or evil passion, or evil urge, and enticed. Verse 15, then, after desire, or that urge, or that passion has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, what James just laid out for us is what I call the great progression. The great progression begins with temptation, then evil urge, then conception, then sin, then death. Temptation, even though it might appear and seem good and right and true, something ungodly is put before us. This, in essence, is kind of the first step. It could be an idea, it could be a word, it could be an action. It could be a reaction, something we could say or something we could do or something we could buy into and believe. And it's something, though, that contradicts or runs against God and his will for us. So in other words, it's an ungodly, it's an evil something that is put before us. Then the next progression comes this evil urge within us. It comes from within That ungodly evil something before us arouses in us a desire, a passion, an urge to pursue that something before us, whatever it is. And so what happens is we are drawn, we are enticed, we are lured towards the ungodly something. Then comes conception. The evil urge joins forces with or connects with the evil something, the ungodly something. Whether it's that idea, that word, that action, that reaction, and thus comes this conception. And what does it conceive? Sin. This is the progression, the great progression that leads to sin. State of rebellion, state of darkness, And what then comes from sin? Death. So temptation, something ungodly is put before us. Evil urge, that ungodly something arouses in us an evil desire to pursue that ungodly something. Conception, our evil urge joins forces with that ungodly something. The idea is embraced and believed. The action or reaction is taken. The word is spoken or it's actually written. Then comes sin. The state of rebellion. And the result is demise, destruction, death. It's the great progression of James 1 that is the foundation and explanation to James chapter 4. Where he also lays out for us how to resist the evil urge. How to avoid the great progression. So look now at James chapter 4, verse 1. That's kind of our foundation. There are those words. James is now going to connect this section in James 4 to that. In James 4, this is what he writes. What causes, 
fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, your passions, your urges, that battle, that rage war within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you murder, you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want. So what do you do then? You quarrel and fight. You seek to divide and destroy. You don't have, why? Because you don't ask God, because you don't pray. And when you ask, when you pray, you don't receive, because when you ask, you're asking with wrong motives, wrong intent, so that you may consciously or subconsciously spend what you get on your pleasures, on that evil urge, that evil desire, that evil passion. He goes on, verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God's? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God. Draw near to him, and he will come near to you. He'll draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, confess your sins. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he'll exalt you, or he will lift you up. So what is James saying? Well, I want you to imagine you're sitting on the edge of a pond. There's a nice breeze, but not enough to disturb the water. It's just still, it's peaceful, it's quiet. It's like this hazy sheet of glass before you. And there you are in your seat next to this pond, And you're holding in your hand a fishing rod. And at the end of that fishing pole, you begin to bait the hook. And then you cast that hook into the middle of that pond. And then you sit back and you drink your nice cold Coca-Cola. And you enjoy the nice beautiful, lazy afternoon. Now for some of you, I just described for you heaven, right? That's about where some of you are, I think, right now, huh? But what are you doing really in that moment, besides enjoying the weather and the, and the, the quiet moment? What are you really after with your pole and the hook and the bait? What are you, what are you doing? What, what are you trying to get? You're trying to get fish. You're fishing. You're trying to catch a fish. Now when I go, it doesn't work, but what How is it supposed to work, right? How is it supposed to work? Well, your bait is thrown into the water, and that bait then just dangles there, which then entices. It lures the fish towards it. You might say the fish are tempted 
by what they see or smell or whatever senses they use to get their cravings going and their desires going for what they do not have. The fish wants the bait. As the bait dances and moves and shines there in the water, the fish desire the bait. They have an urge to bite the bait. Now again, not when I throw it in there, but when others throw it in there. That's how it's supposed to work. But if you're successful, that fish will give in to its urges and bite down on that bait and lock on. And unbeknownst to the fish before that moment, but now fully realized, biting that bait leads to its demise, its destruction, its death. Unless you're nice and you throw it back in. But it leads to your victory. You're the thrower of the bait. It leads to your victory on that nice, beautiful, lazy afternoon beside a still pond. Now I want you to picture your life. If you're married, I want you to picture your marriage. Your family. Maybe it's your brothers and sisters. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a a cousin or something. Picture your family. Picture your school. The environment, the relationships within that school. Picture your workplace, the relationships and environment within that workplace. Picture our community. Picture our culture, a generation. Picture our church as that pond. And every day, every hour, seemingly every minute, an ungodly piece of bait is being casted and plopped right down into the water. And it hangs there, dangling and dancing and moving and shining, almost with a hint of a sparkle on it. And it looks so good. It smells so good. It begins to arouse in you an evil urge, a desire, a passion. You want it. You want to sink your mouth into it. You you want to sink your mind and your heart into it. Maybe it's an idea that you so desperately want to believe is true. Maybe it's a word that you so desperately want to speak or write. Maybe it's an action you want to take. Maybe it's a reaction you want to invoke. But you have this evil urge to bite down on that ungodly bait and just lock on. And so you do. The evil urge joins with the evil something. The mouth closes over the bait, connecting with the hook. Then comes your demise. Then comes your destruction. Then comes your death. Of your marriage, relationships within your family, the relationships and environment within that school, that workplace, your community, our culture, an entire generation, maybe even our church. The reason why people are quarreling and fighting and bickering and destroying each other, the reason why things are ending and demise and destruction or death is because people are failing to recognize and acknowledge and be on guard of 
what James lays out for us, the great progression. And instead, they are giving in themselves into their evil urges and taking the ungodly bait left and right, right and left, so many that the one throwing the bait is not just pulling them up one hook at a time, but one massive honking net at a time. But James wants us to hear these words. Regardless of the evil urges you have, the evil desires, the evil passions, and you do have them. We sang it just a moment ago. There's only one who's holy, and it ain't you. You have them. And until you and I share in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we are going to battle all sorts of evil urges and passions of the flesh that run against God and his will for our lives. Listen, it's as Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate, I do. He acknowledges that there was a war raging between the Spirit of God in him and his flesh. And it's the same war that rages inside of us between the same Spirit of God in us and our flesh today. We are going to battle evil urges, urges that are bent away from God, urges that are in contradiction to God and in rebellion of God and his will. We are going to find ourselves down to a molecular atomic level, wanting to do or say things we should not do or say, or not wanting to do or say things we ought to do or say. But regardless of the evil urges, we as followers of Jesus must resist the urge. We must avoid the great progression. So how do we do that? Well, we must see the great progression at work. That someone put that bait there on purpose, intentionally, knowing you and I specifically would be enticed by it, lured by it. And we must see that within that bait, there is a hook that leads to our demise, our destruction, our death. We must resist the evil urge to bite into the evil something. But again, how? How is that possible? Well, there are a few things. We'll get to the most important of the few things at the end, but a few things. We need to resist the devil, he says in James 4. Resist the devil. Now in chapter 1, he said, Blessed is the person who perseveres or who endures under temptation. Because for that person, or that person stands to receive a gift, a crown of life from the Lord. And listen, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about suffering and trials. But suffice it to say that for James, there is a difference between trials and temptations. And we'll look at that distinction then. But after James says this, he seems to know that we might then jump to a false conclusion and falsely believe, oh, then it must be the Lord tempting me. No. The Lord tempts no one. He's holy. He's pure. He tempts no one. So then who tempts us? Who puts the ungodly bait in the water? I would argue Satan. The devil. That's why he would say in James 4, resist him. 
The devil is the one who throws the ungodly bait into the water. For example, it was the devil who approached Eve in the garden and put an idea before her. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, but who put the ungodly baits in the water and dangled them before Jesus? Satan. Still another example, John 13, while supper was taking place, the devil put this idea of betraying Jesus into the mind of Judas. Satan throws the bait into the water. And as we saw last year in our Ephesians series, Satan is the adversary. He is the one who opposes. And this title that James uses, the devil, means he's the slanderer. He's the accuser. Jesus would call him the father of lies. He utilizes his native language, lies. And he preys on the cravings of our flesh. He takes advantage of the world arena so as to steal, kill, and destroy. On a micro level, Individual, smaller level, but also on a macro level. A culture, a generation. And his his end goal, his desire is your demise, your destruction, your death. He doesn't want you to have a happily ever after. He doesn't want that crown of life showing up. And you and I cannot take this lightly. See, some of us think, nah, I'm I'm strong enough. I ain't going to buy what he's selling. Here's the thing. He's too good a fisherman. If it was me fishing, sure. He's too good. He knows what specific ungodly bait can trap you. And he knows you by name. And what he wants to do is to arouse your evil passions, your urges, your desires. The word that James used for tempted in chapter 1 means to extensively examine someone, to study them for a purpose. The word he uses, it it means to extensively examine someone for the purpose of learning their habits, their weaknesses, so as to take advantage and to get them to mess up, to fail, to fall, to lose. Think of it like this. The football season is quickly approaching, and uh, it gets me excited, one, because I just, I love football, but I also love just the fall weather and everything. And football coaches and, and many players, they will study film. Sometimes spend hours studying film, days studying film. Why? To examine their opponent, to study their opponent, to study their opponent's plays and formations, sure. But the really good coaches and players study the tendencies of their opponent, their habits, their weaknesses. Ask a receiver in the NFL, and they'll tell you, I study that DB's tendencies, so I know which moves to implement. They then design specific plays geared towards trapping that opponent, taking advantage of that opponent, to lure and entice the opponent to mess up, to fail, to miss a block, to miss a catch, to fall, to lose. That's what Satan does. 
on a much more extensive level. He examines and he studies. He tries something out on Monday to see how it goes with you. He changes it up and then puts something before you on Friday so that the pool on your evil urge is stronger and more effective on Friday than it was on Monday. That's why the gospel writers tell us that when when Satan left Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't leave him for good. He left him until an opportune time. And it got really intense in the garden. Listen, he knows how to deceive us, to manipulate, to plant something so deep in our hearts and minds to try and to get us to believe that his idea, that bait, is truth. That it corresponds to reality. That it came not from anybody outside, but it came from within us. Thus it's good and right and should be acted on. Thus I must live according to my truth. He doesn't want you to see the hook. He doesn't want you to see the line that leads to your demise, destruction, and death. And so what James is saying is, resist him. In other words, get away from the bait. You're a a gullible, weak fish. Swim away from the bait. Get away from it. Flee. Resist. And if you would do that, he would take his bait away. But not forever. Tomorrow he's going to come back again. He's going to throw that bait back in the water, and then he's going to throw it back into the water. Resist him, and he'll flee from you. Another thing James says is, in essence, we need to resist the world. Don't be friends with the world, he says. If you do, you're going to make yourself an enemy to God. Now, he's not saying, hey, don't be in the world. He's not saying, hey, don't speak to the world or don't engage the world. He's also not quite literally saying, hey, don't be friends with unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't become partakers with them. The world runs after the ungodly bait without even thinking. Just as you and I once did. The world arena influences and pressures others to do the same. So in essence, resist the influence and the pressure to be like the world. When they swim downstream, you swim upstream. When they go, you stay. When they stay, you go. When they speak, you remain silent. When they're silent, you speak. In other words, don't be partakers with them. Be unlike the world in how you live and in how you speak. Remember, speak and live according to Heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. The world gives into its evil urges, promotes and celebrates its evil urges. And it promotes and celebrates biting into the ungodly somethings being plopped down into the water. Just look at our culture. But James is saying, you, as followers of Jesus, must resist the world's pull on your heart and mind. 
You must resist their influence and pressure to go after the ungodly debate. Another thing, as the title of the message is, resist your own evil urges. But how? How do do you resist the devil? How do you resist the world? How do you resist your own evil urges to give into temptation? The evil something. Well, here's the message loud and clear. You can't resist. It's why we're in the mess to begin with. All have sinned, meaning all have given in. As C.S. Lewis would argue, Jesus is the only one who knows the full extent of temptation because he resisted it unto death. You can't, but God can. Again, we sang it earlier. There is only one who is holy and who is pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every respect that you and I are tempted, yet without sin. You and I can't resist, but God can. You can't resist the evil urge. Only God can. This is why James says, listen, in humility, submit to God. You have to. In humility, you have to draw near to God. In humility, you have to confess your sins to God. Because you can't do it. Only God can. You'll remember the story, but there was a son who stood to make a lot of money with his inheritance. And with that gift came an ungodly something dangling before him. Something that seemingly had no end. All that money could buy him. So within him came an evil urge and he took it. He bit into the apple. And he spent it all on wild, reckless living. In other words, he spent everything on his evil urges and passions and desires, the cravings of his flesh, which led to his demise, his destruction, figuratively speaking, but almost quite literally his death, face in the ground in the mud. Then he came to his senses. And in his heart and mind, he submitted to his father. And he drew near to his father in complete humility and in full confession. And what was the father's response? Full of grace and mercy and love and power, the father runs out to him. And the father did not shame or mock or humiliate him. The father didn't throw him into prison. The father embraced him as a son and exalted him. My son who is dead is now alive. Lost, but now is found. 
Jesus' point is all of us have given into the ungodly something, into that temptation, given into those evil urges. All have sinned and fallen and rebelled. But thanks be to God, His grace is more. His mercy is more. His love is more. His power is more. And it, it's available to you. That's what James is saying. It's available to you. So submit to God. Draw near to Him. Confess your sins to God. And He'll be there. Not to shame, mock, or humiliate. Not to throw you into prison. But to embrace you as a son or daughter. And exalt you. For this child was dead, but now is alive. Lost, but now is found. And for those who submit to God, who draw near to Him, and in humility confess their sins to God, again, He embraces and and exalts them. And He says, as Paul would write in Romans 8, right after his acknowledgement of the war that rages within him, he acknowledges it's no longer I who lives. In essence, it's Christ who lives in me, as he says in Galatians. But then he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to become our sin, so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might become his righteousness in Christ. Listen, we have to see the great progression. We have to resist the evil urge by humbling ourselves, submitting to God, drawing near to God, and confessing our sins to God. As John said, those who confess their sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You can't resist. God can and so with heads bowed, eyes closed, Lisa's going to come forward. We're going to have a, a unique time of invitation to prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper. And it's a time to submit ourselves to God, draw near to Him, and to confess our sins before Him. It's a time where we remember, man, we couldn't do it. We can't do it. But God could and God did in and through Jesus on the cross and in resurrection. His grace is more, His mercy is more, His love and power is more. And He says just in humility, submit, draw near, confess, and I'll embrace you and I'll exalt you as a son or daughter. Paul would say before we partake of the Lord's Supper together, the the bread and the cup, we need to get our hearts and minds right before the Lord. And so even as Lisa plays, these steps are open. If you want to come pray, kneel down here at these steps, you can. The deacons are going to come forward and start getting ready. But now's the time for you to just get your heart and mind right before the Lord. To submit to Him, draw near to Him and to confess any sins you got in your heart and mind before him.